Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Elections have consequences, don't they? You know, if you uh, doubt that, just uh, talk to Nancy Pelosi or uh, Kevin McCarthy. Because of how the elections turned out in uh, January 1st, Kevin McCarthy will become third in line to be president. Nancy Pelosi will just go back to being a regular congresswoman. Elections have consequences. Now, we have been walking through the book of Matthew, and one of the things I've been uh, likening Matthew's presentation of Jesus to a presidential campaign. It's like Jesus was running for king. He was working the area of Galilee, and his forerunner preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He stepped off the stage, and Jesus came on the stage, and he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the king. The kingdom is imminent. Get ready for the kingdom. And so the big question was, were they going to choose Jesus to be their king? Well, what we've seen for the last couple of weeks, as we've been working through particularly Matthew 11 and 12, the answer was no. Now, the masses, they liked him. He could take a little boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people with it. Jesus could make lame people walk. He could make blind people see. Now, you know, who doesn't want that kind of a leader? But the leaders of the country, the spiritual leaders, so to say, the religious leaders, they didn't want him. And in chapter 12 in particular, that kind of really becomes apparent. They are going to, to reject Jesus. If you get your Bible, turn with me to, Rome, uh, to Romans. Turn in your Bible with me to Matthew 12. Because in Matthew 12, this is where the story changes. In Matthew 12, and if you look at verse 14, the religious leaders, they came to the conclusion that Jesus didn't just need to be eliminated killed, he needed to be destroyed. I mean, we want this guy gone, and we want everything about him gone. We don't want him just dead, because then he'll become a martyr, and sometimes martyrs have bigger following than, you know, live prophets. We want him destroyed. But how in the world are you going to destroy someone as popular as Jesus? Well, I'm not sure whether they just stumbled on it or whether it was all a planned attack. But what we saw last week is they came up with the reason why Jesus should be destroyed. He does his work in the spirit and power of Satan. He may look like a really great guy, making lame people walk, blind people see, feeding lots of people, but he's doing it all in the power of Satan. And that's why he's got to go. So the, the, the religious leaders, you know, if this thing's a campaign, 
the religious leaders, the establishment, if you will, they are not going to elect Jesus to be king. Well, that becomes apparent, and in the paragraphs that we're going to look at today, what Jesus does is he tells them the consequences of not electing him to be king. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the chaos to come because you guys are going to reject me. Now, look at chapter 12, Matthew 12, verse 38. Here's how it's going to kind of lay out for us today. We're going to see them make a request of Jesus. And then we're going to see Jesus respond to that. And that's when he tells about this chaos, these horrible things that are going to come because they are rejecting Jesus. And then, like I always do, or like to do, we're going to just say, so what? What difference does it make? How does all this stuff apply to us? So look at verse 38, okay? Now, to get this, To really understand it, you got to remember the context. Look back at chapter 12, verse 14. These guys have already decided he needs to be destroyed. Look at uh, verse 24, 12, 24. They've already decided he's doing all this stuff in the spirit and power of Satan. So when you get to verse 38, this, this request that they have of Jesus... This isn't some noble, let's give him one more chance to see if he really, you know, maybe he is telling the truth. Now, this is a setup, okay? They are just looking for a way to really start to expose him as the fraud they think he is. So look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We want to see a sign from you. And see the word sign? It's not just miracle. We we want to see something really significant that we know God was involved in, and it's not just some parlor trick. It's not just some fluke where this person got well, and they might have gotten well on their own, but you got them well, and we're not sure you did it or didn't do it. We want to see a sign. We want to see a miracle with a capital M, okay? Now, again, they're not, they're not just being noble and saying, let's give the guy one more shot. Let's give the guy one more chance to impress us because maybe he is the king. Now, this is just them looking for an opportunity to really shut him down. Look at verse 39, here's the response that Jesus has, okay? But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. But let me just tell you, no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Let me just stop right there. An evil and adulterous generation. Jesus is kind of assuming the posture of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and a whole bunch of the other prophets and saying, you guys are a bunch of spiritual adulterers. Now, we don't use that word adultery very much anymore. Instead, we talk about someone having a 
fling or a mistake or an affair or a lapse, you know, because the word adultery just, I mean, sounds so judgmental and so guilty and so terrible, so we hardly use it anymore. But, you know, and probably the same thing was true in Jesus' day. But what does Jesus do? He says, you guys are a bunch of spiritual adulterers. You know, and that's kind of good for us to remember when, I mean, my relationship with, with Jesus Christ, your relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like a marriage. And when I become disloyal to Jesus, when I start desiring something other or more or better than Jesus, I'm not just having a fling. I'm not just, you know, a misstep. It's adultery. So Jesus says, you evil and adulterous generations. And I'm sure that just really made him feel good, you know, to be called adulterers, okay? You guys crave for a sign. But let me just tell you, no sign is going to be given to you the sign of Jonah the prophet. What was Jonah the prophet? You know his story. I mean, God sent him to Nineveh. Nineveh was this huge, powerful, major city, Gentile city. I mean, these, these people were not just, you know, people that knew the truth and had wandered off. These people were pagans from the word go. And God sent Jonah there. Well, Jonah said no. And instead, he went the other way. Goes out, and he's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, on his way to modern-day Spain. And uh, what do they do? Through a series of events, they throw him overboard. I mean, he's as good as dead. I mean, he has this near-death experience And what happens? Some great fish, might have been a whale, might have been something else, but some big fish swallows him, spits him up on shore, and he goes back to Nineveh. I mean, this guy came close to death, almost died. He was as good as dead, and now he's alive, and he's telling the people of Nineveh to repent. And what Jesus is doing is he's kind of likening What Jonah did, what happened to Jonah, to what's going to happen to him. He's referring to his death and resurrection. Jonah almost died. Jonah had a near-death experience. Jesus is going to die, and he's going to come back to life. Let's look at verse 40. Jesus says in 39, he says, you ain't going to get anything. One more miracle. One more sign, my my death and resurrection. Now, Jesus did more miracles, but they were always more on the private side. He didn't do these big, open, public miracles from then on. It's like he would heal this person, but it was just kind of a, a private little thing, personal thing. You Pharisees aren't going to get anything else. You're going to get one more shot, and that shot's going to be my death and resurrection. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, Don't get too uh, bent out of shape about the three days and the three nights and 
you know, because if you sit and think about it, was Jesus crucified on Wednesday afternoon right before sundown? Or did Jesus rise Saturday night and then just pulled an all-nighter and then appeared in the morning? It, let me tell you, three days, three nights, it's basically just an idiom. It's kind of like me saying, you know, us preachers really have it tough. We work 24-7. You know, okay, well, you can call me at any time you want, 24-7. You can call Andy 24-7, but, you know, I have my phone on sleep mode, so you're probably just going to go right to voicemail. But I love to tell people, preachers work 24-7. It's just an expression. It's an idiom. This is the same way, okay? So it, the, the traditional understanding of the last week of Jesus' life is, is accurate. He was crucified Friday, died by Friday afternoon, buried before sundown Friday night, and he rose Sunday morning. This isn't a contradiction we're not sitting and saying 72 hours, he's got to be in the grave, 72 hours. It's, it's just not there. It's an idiom, it's an expression, uh, totally fits with, you know, our understanding of how to interpret and understand Scripture and take it at face value in a, in a plain sense of the way. But look what he says here. In verse 39, he says, you're not going to get another sign except the sign of Jonah. You're going to have me die, come back to life, just like Jonah almost died and came back to life. That's all you're going to get from now on. Why? Because you guys are an evil and adulterous generation. You guys have set your heart. In fact, as we saw last week, these guys have already committed a sin that God says, I'm not going to forgive. It's a special one-time situation. You want to hear more about that? Just go to the website and listen to last week's sermon again. But here's the deal. Look what he does starting in verse 41. Because this is kind of interesting. He says, here's what's going to happen, you evil and adulterous generation. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. The whole city of Nineveh, these Gentile pagans, they repented because some preacher had a near-death experience and came and preached the gospel to them. You guys have something better. You got the Son of God. You got the second person of the Trinity right here, and you're rejecting him. And at the judgment, the people of Nineveh, they're going to condemn you. They're going to sit and say, what were you guys thinking? Look at verse 42. Another story. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, She's going to rise up with this generation at the judgment and she'll condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I mean, at the judgment, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, she's going to look at you guys and say, what were you thinking? I mean, she came to faith in the one true God because she got to meet Solomon. 
And everyone thinks Solomon is wise. Yeah, he was wise. Wisest man that ever lived. Well, really the second wisest man that ever lived. Because you're talking to wisdom itself. The second person of the Trinity is here. The Son of God is here. In the same way that the Ninevites repented because they had Jonah, and the Queen of the South repented because she had Solomon, you guys should be repenting yesterday. Then look, verse 43. Now this gets really interesting, okay? I hope you're, I hope you're tracking with this because this, this is fascinating. What's Jesus doing? He's talking to some wicked and evil people that have already set their heart against him. He is telling them the consequences of their rejection of his kingship and his impending kingdom. He's telling them about the chaos that is going to come. And then he tells this, this, this cryptic parable. And if you just read it by itself without taking the con context into to consideration, it's hard to understand. It's hard to figure it out. But when you think about the context of who he's talking to and why he's telling them this and what he's telling them, why he's telling it, it makes a lot of sense. Look at verse 43. Now, when an unclean spirit, that's a demon. We talked about demons, was it last week? Yeah. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he leaves that man. You know, they had seen Jesus cast demons out. Here's a man that's possessed with a demon. Jesus cast that demon out. They should have been familiar with that phenomena. Now, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and it doesn't find it. What in the world that means, I don't really know. Nobody knows. A lot of stuff's been written about it, but when you get to the end of it, it's like, nope, he didn't know what it meant either. So, you know, but, but these, this demon leaves this person that he's possessed, passes through waterless places, Seeking a place, trying to find a better home, better place to occupy, but he can't find it. Verse 44. Then it says, you know what? I think I'll go back to the house where I was. That was a good place. Why in the world did I leave it in the first place? Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes back, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. It's all cleaned up. Well, that just kind of makes sense. You get rid of a demon in a person's life, that person's life kind of sort of cleans up. They don't do as much sin as they possibly can. They, they still sin. They still are wicked and evil, but they're not as wicked and evil as they could have been because they don't have this demon inside of them motivating them. So the house gets swept and cleaned up. And the guy's like, wow, never saw the floor before. <laughs> this place looks good. This place looks comfortable. And so what does he do? He's hospital got some hospitality in him. So then, verse 45, he goes and he takes with him seven other guys and says, hey, party at my place. 
and with it seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they go and they live there. And guess what? The last state of that man becomes even worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil, and Jesus could have also said adulterous, generation. What's he saying through this parable to them? Let's just review. Jesus said, you're not going to get another sign. One more sign, the sign of Jonas. You're going to see someone die, come back to life. That's all you're going to get now, you Pharisees, because of your rejection. And so here's what's going to happen. Because you've rejected me. At the judgment, the people of Nineveh are going to think you guys are idiots. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule. It's like, wait a minute. You guys had Jesus come and you still stayed in your disbelief, in your unbelief? You're going to have the Queen of Sheba come. And she's going to say, can't believe you guys. You guys had Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, here in your midst, and you still rejected God? You still rejected the offer of the king and his kingdom? Man, let me tell you what you guys are like. You guys are like a house that has a whole bunch of evil people living in it. Well, really just one evil person living in it. But that guy left. And, and remember, I, that's one of the things I've been doing. In fact, you guys criticized me about it in last week's sermon that I cast out someone, you know, from someone's life. And that life started to get clean. But look at verse 44. There's a word there I skipped. When the demon came back and he found the house clean and neat and swept, he also found it un occupied. Probably the most important word in the whole passage, unoccupied. Yeah, you got rid of the demon, but you never replaced him with the king. And so what's going to happen to you? Now you're going to have eight demons, and they're all worse than what it was. Your first state, your lostness before, it was nothing compared to what you're going to be facing. Now, why is Jesus doing all this? He's telling them the consequences of rejecting him. He's telling them about the chaos that is going to come because they had the king And they said, no, the king was here offering his kingdom, and they said, no thanks. In fact, they didn't just say no thanks. They said, he's of the devil. We don't want anything. We want to figure out how to destroy him. Now, here's the next thing I want to do. So I want to ask the question, so what? 
why is this important? Why did you guys need to know this? I mean, okay, there's a few of us here that are, we're really into it, and it's like we love, you know, studying the literature and seeing the transition. Oh, that's, how, that's what went on, and it just makes it richer for us. But why do we need to know this? What difference does this make? Well, let, let, me, let me just kind of reframe it for you. Here's the deal. These people had rejected Jesus Christ. These people were estranged from Christ and were not going to come back. And they had all the evidence. In fact, they had Christ right there, and they still rejected. Here's the deal. We're living in, a midst, in the midst of a time when people are still rejecting Jesus Christ. And, and we need to sit and think about, what does that mean? I mean, you think about where you live, and I'll bet you don't have to go too far away from your home to find people who are just really and truly rejecting Jesus. They might be outright rejecting him, or they might just be ignoring him, but the truth of the matter is they're not passionate and trying to engage in, in being a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. Well, what's this saying about the con consequences of that rejection of that person's life? I mean, they're, I mean, I'm assuming that we're all in, but that's probably a dumb assumption. I mean, in a group this size, I mean, there's probably a few of us that are here saying, I'm still wondering. You know, I like it, but I'm so-so. What are the consequences for you? if you've rejected Jesus. What's he describing here? I'll tell you what he's describing. He's describing chaos, horrible situations because of that rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm talking about salvation here, okay? But I think you could also back it off because remember, who were the Matthew's original readers? They were all Jewish believers who were all in. He wasn't writing this so that they would believe. They already believed. They were having difficulty trying to figure out, how does this work? He said he was the king, but he went back to heaven. He said there was going to be a kingdom, but he went back to heaven. How does this work? And I think maybe there's a point here for all of us who have trusted Christ. Because we're going to see next week you know, even though I know Jesus Christ, even though I have trusted him and I, and I am committed to him and all of that stuff, the hardness sometime of my heart rejects his word. Sometimes I know what I'm supposed to do, Romans 7, but I don't do it. Sometimes I hear what God has to say, and I'm just absolutely convinced that that does not work in 2022. And I need to help God out by coming up with a different solution. You just don't deal with people that way anymore. And so I'm rejecting the wisdom of God. Sometimes I, it's like I pray about it, pray about it, pray about it, and I know what God's answer is. And you know what else I do? I just keep praying because God hadn't given me the answer I want. That's just kind of a politically correct way to reject God. Anyone relating to what I'm saying here? 
I mean, we reject Jesus Christ way too often. We know what the truth of the Word is, we know what the wisdom of Scripture is, and we don't do it. We are just like these Pharisees saying, man, just, could you just give us one more time and then we'll be all in with you, Jesus? That's the so what that I think every one of us need to come to. This isn't just for those who have yet to trust Jesus Christ and become a believer. I think this is for those of us like me that have known the Lord for well over 50-some years and I'm still sometimes struggling to obey, to be all in, to surrender again to his call on my life. Now, with that said, let me give you four, three things here that I think just really come straight out of this passage. So what's that we need to take to the bank and remember regularly. Here's the first one. There really is a day of judgment for everyone, believers and non-believers alike. Everyone will stand before our judge, Jesus Christ. John uh, 5.22, Jesus said the Father had given him the authority to judge. I, I think that means at the great white throne judgment, you know, the one at the end of uh, Revelation 20? That's Jesus. Maybe the Father's there as well. That's Jesus. Everyone is going to stand in front of Christ at some point. That person that lives next to you, that works next to you, that perhaps lives with you, that is yet to trust Jesus Christ, they have an appointment with Jesus Christ, a day of reckoning. And, you know, I think sometimes we, we you know, just in our you know, power of positive thinking type Christianity these days, we don't talk about that much. Well, I just want to put a positive spin on it, okay? If you're really and truly living for Jesus Christ, and seeking to be this fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, standing before Christ, that can be a positive thing. But, and you can fill in the rest, but that's negative, so I'm not going to bring that up, okay? There's a day of judgment. And let me tell you, here's the, rejecting Christ, whether it's rejecting Christ for salvation or just in your, your sanctification, rejecting Christ as you walk with him, there's horrible consequences for that. There, there, there is a time of judgment and to be disobedient to Christ, whether it's to trust him for salvation or just to trust him for how to spend my money or conduct my marriage or raise my kids or deal with the immorality of the culture. Rejecting Jesus Christ has horrible consequences. You know, just think, think, think a little bit about verses 41 and 42. It's kind of hard to know just exactly how much to read into that. But can you imagine 
if it really happens this way, I mean, can you imagine the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment that that generation might have from the Ninevites or the Queen of Sheba? Can you imagine the embarrassment you might have from others? I mean, I don't, you know, it's hard to say how much to really read into it, but what does he say? They will stand up with this generation and condemn it because all they had was Jonah. These people have Jesus. All she had was Solomon. These people have Jesus. All you've got is, well, we got Jesus. Why in the world would we not follow him? One last thing to to camp on. It's that word unoccupied. I think the secret to doing it well for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, it is letting Christ occupy your life. We, We often talk about abiding in Christ. This is kind of the same concept, but just looking at it from the other side. We need to let Christ abide in us. I mean, there is a relationship that, that is available to us to really and truly walk with him. And, and you manifest that, uh, or you get to experience that relationship and foster it and grow it by, by things like coming to church and rubbing shoulders with his people and and seeking to connect on a spiritual basis. Uh, you you foster it by reading his word and 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 you know when you read a passage, I mean one of the things you should do is at the end of it say so what? So that you're not just reading this data, you're saying what does this stuff mean? What difference should this make in my life today as I teach these third graders? What difference should this make in my life as I go seek to sell a widget to that person over there? But you know, if we're not feeding ourselves on the riches of God's word, if we're not fellowshipping with God's people, if we're just walking independently, Jesus isn't really occupying our life. I mean, he might be there, but he doesn't have any influence. He's like a tenant that doesn't have any authority because we've stripped him of that authority, or at least we've not granted him that authority. We're constantly squelching him. We talk about abiding in Christ. Is Christ abiding in you? I know he's in you if you've trusted Jesus Christ. But are you letting him live out? Remember Galatians 2.20? You ought to write this down. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that your experience? I mean, this, this is the wonderful thing that we get to have as people who have trusted Christ. We get to have that relationship with him 
and he can take up residence in our life and live himself out. So that when we're doing the things he's called us to do, whether it's teaching or selling or designing or rearing children or cleaning houses or whatever, we are Christ in that situation because he occupies us. He abides in us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the uh, opportunity to look at uh, really this key passage in the life of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that every one of us would recognize the consequences of rejecting Christ. I pray we would recognize the, the chaos that could be ours because we've ignored him, we've squelched him, we've pushed him aside, we've treated him as irrelevant. Father, help us not to be that way. Help us to recognize that you sent your son not just to save us, but to occupy us and help us to be trophies of grace that model righteousness. And so, Father, we, uh, we pray today that as we wrap up our time, we pray, Father, that we would be people who are very motivated to have Christ in us and the hope of glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.